0: It's time for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070, joined as always by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. The passing of a man who I have heard described as a giant, a titan of public interest litigation. I think members of the public, Michael Mulligan, would be shocked to find out just how influential Joe Arve was. It's
1: really remarkable. You know, uh, Mr. Harvey, he was 71 years of age when he passed away this weekend. Um, he was and continued to be up until this weekend, uh, I think, a uh, force of nature in terms of uh, litigation and uh, litigation in particular dealing with sort of public interest uh, matters. Um, he had uh, cases that went to the Supreme Court of Canada that uh, go on for pages um, and uh, he's had a, just a, a major and outsized influence on uh, sort of public policy and the advancement of the law in Canada now for decades. So it's a genuine loss. Uh, he was a uh, uh, not only a, an excellent uh, lawyer, but uh, a really decent uh, person, right, to sort of on a personal level. He was funny and engaging and uh, just a really decent guy. Um, and it caused me to sort of look through and reflect upon um, some of the uh, cases that he's dealt with over the years. Uh, and uh, I'd like to, to talk about a few of them. Please. But what One of the themes, I think, that sort of uh, became apparent looking at these um, is that um, he would advance cases. I think a person described it as sort of. 10 years ahead of their time. Hmm. And and one of the things he was known for is uh, not paying a whole lot of attention to sort of hierarchy and being prepared to sort of go back with new and creative arguments, revisiting things that, in some cases, people might have thought, well, that's decided. We can't uh, do anything about that, right? Yes. Um, and the law, by its nature, is incremental. Um, and it can wind up being uh, somewhat behind perhaps sort of current uh, times and mm. it 's interesting looking at some of the arguments he made and their success, and then looking back on them and Now you might look at them and say, Well, of course that 's so, right, yes. uh, but at the time they were novel and really moved the ball in a way that it, without his efforts would not have moved uh, in the way that it did um, and to give you an example of that, and sort of how um, he advanced things, I think, in terms of uh, timeliness. So sort of one of the early cases that it caused me to look at was a Little Sisters Bookstore case, yes, which is a famous one. It involved the border uh, officials uh, screening out uh, books that were intended for a gay and lesbian bookstore in um, in Vancouver and f- filtering them out on the basis that they were obscene. Now. That in the current context, I, I think you would look at it and say, "Well, that's just sort of a you know how could that be going on? What a ridiculous state of affairs!" Hmm. But you know when those when that was being litigated, that's now back in 1990, right? Yes. That was a you know a, a, a cutting edge issue, and so he it, man he succeeded with that, of course, and you know advanced the ball, and that I think is a theme in you know many of the uh, sort of more recent cases that people may not. Uh, be completely familiar with. Um, One of those that came to mind, one of the recent ones, um, was a a case I think uh, uh, we've discussed in some context called Henry. It was a case that involved a a man from Vancouver who was wrongly convicted of this series of sexual assaults. Um, And he was wrongly convicted because the uh, Crown, who was prosecuting him, uh, didn't disclose to him um, evidence or statements from witnesses uh, that would have potentially undermined uh, the identification of the, of the person who actually committed these offenses as well as the Crown withheld forensic evidence uh, from him at the time and resulted in this man being in prison for 27 years. Um, Arve uh, wound up uh, taking a case suing the provincial government uh, to get compensation for Mr. Henry as a result of these 27 years of wrongful imprisonment. Um, uh, and at the time, the, the law was uh, that in order to succeed in uh, getting compensation for being wrongly convicted, um, you would have to establish that there was malice, that sort of the prosecution was, you know, for some, in, you know, in proper purpose there was sort of an intentional wrongdoing yes and the concept there was you know there was uh this is maybe a a indication of the general conservative small c conservative nature of the um the law the concern was not wanting to uh, interfere with uh, prosecutorial discretion on things like whether to prosecute somebody or not the view was we didn't want to have those uh, decisions uh, second-guessed in the context of civil litigation. Mm-hmm. So there was this really high threshold for getting some compensation. You'd have to prove malice, which would sort of suggests the concept of intentionally doing something wrong, right? Yes. But he nonetheless said, look, I'm going to challenge that. And one of the arguments he made was that there should be a right to compensation as a constitutional remedy. Hmm. Uh, And so he took that uh, argument and all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada and he succeeded. Uh, And so the Supreme Court of Canada accepted his argument that the decision about whether to uh, provide disclosure, like tell somebody about evidence that shows that they may be innocent is not a matter of discretion, right? It's not a matter of the Crown deciding you know, do we choose to prosecute this person or not? That being a sort of a matter of Crown discretion. Once you decide to prosecute somebody, the the Crown doesn't have any discretion uh, about uh, providing disclosure of evidence that would allow the person to respond to the charges. Like, there's no choice to be made about whether you tell the person hey by the way there are a bunch of statements that suggest you didn't do it (laughs) right you can't say i'm prosecuting you but not telling you about a bunch of evidence that shows that you may be innocent and so the supreme court of canada accepted his uh, argument there and now the law has changed mr henry got compensation for it uh, for his imprisonment and found that look the impugned conduct here of the Crown and not telling Mr. Henry about the evidence that showed that he wasn't the person who did it, that doesn't require a a threshold of malice or intention. It's just you didn't do it. You were obliged to do it, and so Mr. Henry got compensation. Hmm. Um, And so that would be sort of an example of sort of, you know, not accepting the law as it stood at the time, which would suggest that, well, you need to show malice, and how are you going to do that? And and so on, and making that kind of an argument and saying, look, I'm just not going to accept that, so let's give it a try. And off it went with a compelling argument, and it carried the day and the law changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and other cases of his have a similar theme. Um, there was another uh, case of his that uh, I saw on the list of many. Well, he was uh, one of the
0: litigators in Delgamuuk, wasn't he? Yes, he was. And that that basically, for the benefit of our audience, is the case that found that Aboriginal rights and title had not been extinguished at at Confederation and still existed under Section 35 of the Constitution Act. All the pipeline arguments that we got involved with in terms of rights and title, he was one of the litigators who established that. It's incredible.
1: That's right. And and some of that is sort of a matter of saying, look, I'm just not going to accept that that previous decision is binding and nothing more can happen and everything's immutable and here it is, you know. He, his attitude towards many of these things was, well, look, you know, that was 10 years ago. The evidence is different. Let's give it another shot. Hmm. Um, you know, I've got a new argument. Let's try it, right? Hmm. Um, another example, or another recent one from the case called Bedford. Yeah. Um, that's still having uh, ripples. Uh, uh, Bedford was a case that um, dealt with the constitutionality of the prostitution provisions that used to be in the criminal code. Mm-hmm. We used to have... Uh, 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 criminal offenses, including uh, communicating for the purpose of prostitution uh, or running a common body house or living off the avails of prostitution. Yes. Uh, And they didn't criminalize prostitution itself, but they criminalized virtually everything that might go on in order to have that occur, like communicating for the purpose of it. Yes. And you you used to have, in fact, um, I remember these days, you'd Mm -hmm. go down occasionally. I remember doing this when I was relatively new at this. Mm Mm-hmm. You go down on the weekend uh, to help out people that had been arrested as duty counsel, and Uh you would have prostitutes who were arrested. The police would go out, do undercover operations, and arrest women, often, um, who were out um, as prostitutes, and Mm -hmm. bring them in and suggest that they be charged with communicating. Mm -hmm. It would be, you know, undercover officer pull up, speak to the person through the window of their car, uh, and then arrest them, Um, and you know, different crown and different attitudes towards it. Some I recall at the time just said, "Look, I'm just not prosecuting these women for this. Release them. I'm just not charging them." Indeed. There's an example of crown discretion, right? Sort of, uh, look, I'm just not doing that. Uh, but he challenged those laws uh, on the basis that they violated the security of the person of the people who were working as prostitutes, uh, because. The effect of those kind of prohibitions meant that um there would be steps that a person could take to ensure their safety, which they couldn't take
0: yes. like
1: you, you know you wouldn't be able to um, you know do things that might improve your safety you couldn't hire a security person to help you you 'd have to sort of operate kind of in the shadows, all of which would make prostitutes more vulnerable than they already are hmm. um, and the supreme court of canada accepted that argument and that was also interesting because there had been a previous uh reference to the supreme court of canada about the constitutionality of those provisions um and so somebody might have looked at that and said well you know this doesn't have any uh, hope but he pressed on he had new uh arguments and they succeeded uh-huh. and that's still having ripples the um uh, conservative government at the time uh, tried to re- effectively replace the prohibitions by different forms of prohibitions, um, making it an offense to purchase sexual services and making it uh, uh, an offense to advertise sexual services and made it. sort uh, they tried to recriminalize it by casting it in a different. Way, yes, uh, and those efforts are now c- continuing to be challenged. There was just a decision in uh, Ontario that found that various of those uh, new uh, provisions um, were also unconstitutional because they uh, continued to have the, the sort of effect that the Supreme Court of Canada referred to in Bedford by effectively making it more dangerous for people who were already engaged in dangerous work. Um, forcing that sort of thing uh, underground. And so that's another example, I think, of saying, look, I'm not going to accept the status quo uh, and I'm going to push, and the pushing moved the ball Mm. in a way that uh, you know, um, was, I think, perhaps ahead of its time, right? Um, You know, I think the attitudes, sort of social attitudes often uh, are in it, the, the law often trails social attitudes towards things, right? Yeah. And the law, for example, surrounding prostitution, there's not going to be a consistent view on these things, but, you know, the, they're, um, I think perhaps the uh, law often reflects a, a more conservative view of things as societal attitudes change over time. And yeah. so a number of these cases demonstrate pushing against um, some of that inherent conservatism of, in the, the law. Um, another one of those is a case called Carter. Carter's case involving um, physician assisted uh, dying. Yes. And that was yet another example uh, of uh, pushing uh, against um, laws which um, would have uh, sort of appeared to be um, decided, right? We, of course, from Victoria had the Sue Rodriguez case, yes. which went to the Supreme Court of Canada, which found that the laws that prohibited Assisted, uh, su- uh, that prohibited assisted suicide were constitutional. So, some might have looked at it and say, Well, this is just decided. What am I going to do with that, right? Uh, but he didn't accept that and he pushed against it and led different evidence and maybe made, the, made uh, other arguments. And that one, the Supreme Court of Canada pointed out, um, and of course, he succeeded. Uh, and the Supreme Court of Canada pointed out that judges are entitled to revisit. Um, previous uh, decisions uh, where there are uh, one of two possible grounds, either where there are new legal issues raised, as Mm -hmm. there were there, uh, or there's a change in circumstances um, with respect to the uh, evidence that fundamentally shifts the parameters of the debate. And they found both of those things were met, um, and so they came to a different conclusion than in the case only a few years earlier. And so it's another example of, look, just pushing against that, not accepting, Uh, that that previous decision is immutable and cannot be changed. Another thing which came from that case, which I think is a very important one, uh, uh, and others, he's argued this in various different ways, Carter, is uh, the concept of asking for special costs or costs to be awarded in advance. Um, Many of these cases uh, he would take on uh, for free. Um, and litigate them often all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. Yes. Uh, and one of the arguments which he made in various ways was that um, there should be, in this kind of public interest litigation, right, The you know, the Carter, the Benford, the right uh, Benford case, or this, uh, you know, the right to die case, Carter, was that um, in cases where the sort of the plaintiff is really taking on a, a big social uh, argument like this, where they don't have some personal financial uh, stake in the outcome, there should be provisions made to provide uh, costs, and sometimes even costs in advance. Um, And that's another thing which the Supreme Court of Canada has accepted, that in some circumstances that should be so. You shouldn't say to the person who's, um, you know, uh, suffering and trying to uh, get uh, uh, physician assistance with dying to say, well, If you wish to make that argument, you're going to cover the costs of, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to head off to the Supreme Court of Canada or rely upon somebody of goodwill to do it for you for free. Uh, In appropriate cases, there can and should be and will be uh, arguments that the costs are going to be paid for by the government. Um, in order to allow that kind of public interest litigation to go on. And so that's another thing which he uh, has advanced the ball on, which will have effects for many years to come. Uh, Because as you might imagine, you know, the the tiny bookstore or the the, uh, person who's the sex worker or the person who is uh, trying to get physician assistance with uh, death is not likely to have uh, the money to you know, litigate these things where the government has endless resources to resist them. And resist them, they do. Um, So uh, that's, I think, another uh, big thing which he's really made a a major difference in over his career.
0: A little bit late for our break, but I didn't want to interrupt that because I think it's very important. I want to take a quick break, though, legally speaking with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. We'll continue right after this. We continue with Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070, Michael Mulligan. Uh, Michael, I've got a question on the text messages that I'm sure you'll be uh, able to answer. Somebody's asking me why I'm calling you a barrister and solicitor, and how is that different from a lawyer?
1: Oh, that's a good question, actually. Um, so the, the history of that, of course, in the uh, we take our legal tradition from the U.K., uh, and there they have a divided bar, which means that uh, you would have people who are solicitors and other people who are barristers. And uh, if you uh, were going to be litigating something, a case was going to go to court, a person would go and hire a solicitor, the solicitor would uh, prepare the case and do the research and put together a brief, and then for the purpose of actually going to court and making the argument, uh, other than in very low-level courts, the solicitor would retain a barrister uh, to go in and make the oral argument. And the uh, solicitor would prepare the brief, hire the barrister, deliver the brief to the barrister. and The barrister's role would be simply go into court and make the argument. Um, I, I must say I'm rather envious of that from the perspective of somebody who uh, does spend their time in court. That's what I, in fact, do. Uh, the idea of having somebody else prepare a nice brief with a ribbon around it uh, sounds pretty appealing. <laughs> so that, that, that's the history of the legal profession. But... Uh, the, in uh, British Columbia and I guess the colonies generally, uh, the reality was that there just weren't enough people who were lawyers to have a divided bar like that. And so, uh, barristers and solicitors, basically, it's everyone's doing both. That's really what that, where that comes from. Uh, and so, you, know, you don't have a, uh, even though as a matter of practice, there would be uh, lawyers now who, would not go to court. like sort of, Most lawyers don't spend their time in court arguing about things. Most lawyers, in fact, are solicitors who are yes. doing things like preparing contracts, uh, agreements, and so on. That's much of what the legal profession does. Uh, those of us who go to court are often, in the civil context, fighting when those things go wrong, uh, but we don't have a circumstance where there's a formal division in the bar between people who are solicitors and people who are barristers. And so, um, Uh, Everyone in British Columbia who who is a lawyer would be both a barrister and solicitor, right? They would be uh, entitled to go to court uh, or do solicitor work, uh, even though now there is, practically speaking, uh, a division between those responsibilities. We we still don't have what continues to exist in the U.K., uh, which would be, you know, a a person off the street couldn't go in and just hire a barrister to go in and make an argument. You would hire a solicitor. They would prepare the case, give it to the barrister, who would just go into court and make the argument. One of the arguments for that model um, is that uh, you might have some additional sort of independent or additional, not independence, but uh, objectivity from the barristers who are going into court. The person might say, look, I'll argue a brief for the crown or arguing for the defense. Uh, You know, whatever I'm retained to do, off I go. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, uh, not so in British Columbia, so I'm carefully preparing all of my own files.
0: Oh, well, there we go. Now we know. Thank <laughs> yeah. you very much. I appreciate it. Because I have people ask me from time to time. They don't know what those words mean. They see them on signs from time to time with legal services agencies, but they don't understand the distinction. So thank you.
1: Yeah. Um, so maybe sort of if we have a, a three couple minutes. minutes. Three minutes to the end. One of the cases, uh, Mr. Harvey's case uh, that's uh, ongoing uh, may be another example of moving the bar, the ball. Um, One of the cases he's currently uh, uh, was in process was a case litigating the constitutionality of some of the provisions of the civil forfeiture law in British Columbia. The civil forfeiture law, for people that are not familiar with it, is the idea that the government can take property uh, that might be associated with criminal activity uh, without necessarily uh, ever, ever having a criminal conviction. And the government likes it because the standard of proof is probably like that's what the okay. standard would apply rather than proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And ordinary criminal protections like the right to remain silent and so on don't apply. Mm-hmm. And so the government likes it as a way to try to get um, get at sort of money or the proceeds of what they believe to be criminal activity. The law, however, is extremely broad, and there's been much criticism of how it's been used uh, and. So, Joe Arve took on uh, a case on behalf of the Hells Angels. Yes. Uh, and the provincial government, the civil forfeiture people, uh, were trying to utilize a controversial portion of that civil forfeiture law that allows for the forfeiture of property that uh, could be used in the future for criminal activity. Hmm. Not even that it was used wow. in the past.
0: I didn't know that existed.
1: Well, currently it's found to be unconstitutional, thanks All right. to Joe Arve. Uh, And one of the lines that the so that's why how they were trying to take these Hells Angels clubhouses is not say that they were used for any criminal activity, but that they might be used in the future for some criminal activity. And one of the lines the judge trial judge used in finding that to be unconstitutional, he gave the example of, well, it would be like, for example, a person who's convicted of dangerous driving serves their sentence and then the government decides to go and seize their new car on the basis that they might use it in the future to engage in dangerous driving. Yeah, it doesn't feel right. So that was found to be unconstitutional. The government, of course, doesn't like that outcome uh, and is appealing it currently to the B.C. Court of Appeal. Uh, And interestingly, looking at that, the factums on that case are to be filed tomorrow. Oh, Uh, And so uh, hopefully uh, Mr. Harvey had a... Chance to get his factum filed in advance. Uh, no doubt, other counsel in that case will uh, carry on. But you know, it's uh, another example of uh, uh, Mr. Harvey moving uh, the ball uh, in a way that uh, would be generally consistent with um, you know uh, liberty and so on, uh, and resisting uh, in that case through sort of the government uh, potential what looks to be like overreach, trying to seize things that you might in the future use for some criminal activity, even though you weren't convicted of any, uh, and they don't try to prove that you even used it in that way in the past. Uh, And so uh, the uh, government's trying its best to uh, overturn that trial decision in the Court of Appeal, and uh, that may be uh, uh, one more in Mr. Mm -hmm. Harvey's uh, long legacy of uh, really important decisions. Michael
0: Mulligan, we're all out of time, but thank you as always for the benefit of your knowledge and insight. We greatly appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Talk to you next week. Bye now.